Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's Religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. The Catholic Civil War, provoked by the controversial pontificate of Pope Francis, has escalated hugely since Archbishop Carlo Mario Vigano, formerly the Pope's own ambassador to the United States, accused Francis of cynically covering up the crimes of the disgraced ex-Cardinal Theodore McCarrick of Washington, a serial abuser of seminarians. I've written in The Spectator this week that the picture of Francis that emerges from Vigano's 11-page testimony, which the Pope's defenders have attempted to discredit, is uncannily similar to that we find in the most explosive Catholic book to appear for years, The Dictator Pope by Henry Sear. Mr Sear, who joins me today, spoke to multiple, mainly anonymous, sources in Argentina and Rome about the former Cardinal Bergoglio, who told him that the future Pope was a manipulative character, to put it mildly, who ruthlessly undermined his opponents. Its claims were strongly disputed by the Pope's defenders. Henry Sear, do you feel that Archbishop Vigano's also disputed claim that the Pope rehabilitated McCarrick, lifting sanctions placed on him by Pope Benedict, confirms your own claims? Absolutely, and it's not just a matter of claims of mine. We've seen Pope Francis pardon clerics who've been suspended for sexual abuse. This is absolutely in character. Well, something I've been drawing attention to for a very long time, and it's frustrated me enormously that it hasn't been picked up more widely, is that when he held his synod on the family, Pope Francis invited Cardinal Daniels, the disgraced Belgian cardinal, to join it, despite the fact that Daniels had been caught covering up sex abuse by a bishop who abused his own nephew. Now, it seemed quite incredible to me that Daniels should be invited to that synod, but it was explained to me by a cardinal, no less, that Pope Francis was thanking him for votes that Daniels had lobbied for in the conclave. McCarrick, of course, was also a strong supporter of Pope Francis. Nonetheless, there's quite a jump from that to claiming, as Archbishop Vigano does, that Pope Francis was specifically told there was a thick dossier on McCarrick who had, quotes, corrupted generations of seminarians and priests, and the Pope then ignored it. And what we can be certain is that the Pope did rehabilitate McCarrick and sent him as his emissary all over the world. Yes, but, but uh, this is something that goes back right to Bergoglio's past as Archbishop of Buenos Aires. Uh, he, he was continually associating with clergy who uh, had been accused of uh, sexual wrongdoing or financial wrongdoing. You, you use the word uh, cynical at the beginning. I, I don't know whether, obviously it is cynical uh, in a sense, but, but there seems to be a complete indifference on Bergoglio's part to the moral character of the people he works with. And uh, as I say in my book, it, it, there's a, an element that th this is a positive wish to surround himself with morally weak people because of the hold that it gives him over them. You have, since writing the book, come across further evidence of troubling behaviour by Cardinal Bergoglio, evidence which is on the record but hasn't appeared in the Western press. Now, as I say, it is on the record. I wonder if you could just talk us through it. Yes, the first auxiliary bishop whom Bergoglio appointed 
after being made Archbishop of Buenos Aires, was a man who had been cited, a priest who had been cited in a divorce case as the lover of the woman who was being divorced and, having, and as having broken up the marriage. That bishop continues in, in office today. Another auxiliary bishop whom Bergoglio appointed was dismissed by Pope Benedict a few years later after he was caught having sexual relations with a homosexual prostitute in his own sacristy. When he was dismissed, uh, Archbishop Bergoglio actually defended him publicly, saying that this, this was a setup because, uh, because of the bishop's commitment to the cause of the poor. One of the problems, it seems to me, is that Vigano and his supporters also happen to be theologically opposed to the Francis agenda. It's a rather incoherent agenda, but it but seems to be a desire to relax various moral teachings of the church, or at least their pastoral application. So Team Francis, as they're known, the really hard-line defenders of the Pope, who can do no wrong in their eyes, it would appear, have been able to claim that there's a vast right-wing conspiracy against reforms they feel threatened by. Well, uh, um, it's a question of whether these reforms are, are reforms. What Archbishop Viganon spoke strongly against is the uh, homosexual program in the, in the church, the uh, attempt to relax the um, church's teaching on, on sexuality. It's not just a, a matter of homosexuality, it's also divorce, as we saw in the uh, last synod in the, uh, on the family. Uh, and I think it is important to realize that this is not just a, a matter of clerical um, corruption in America. It's a matter of whether the church is going to defend its traditional teaching on uh, chastity, on, the, on, on marriage, or whether it's going to uh, adapt itself to the, uh, to the standards of, uh, of the modern world. Uh, those who uh, want the latter are obviously strongly in favor of Pope Francis. The homosexual question is a difficult one in this sense. I constantly read vitriolic attacks on gay people by some critics of Francis. And I also read completely unsubstantiated allegations against clerics that they don't like, alleging that they've been involved in sexual wrongdoing or conspiracy without any evidence that would satisfy, for example, a British court. And these attacks are poisonous and very, very difficult to read for those Catholics who genuinely are troubled by evidence that there seems to have been a mafia, if you like, of gay predator bishops and clergy who are covering up for each other. Do you take my point that it can be very difficult to distinguish between the nasty toxic attacks and the entirely justified horror at revelations which seem to be breaking every day? Yes, there is a problem of a homosexual network in the church and in the Vatican itself. But the question of sexual cover-up in the church is not just a matter of a homosexual network. I mean, for example, nobody has ever suggested that Cardinal Danels is a homosexual, but he was prepared, for reasons which it's very difficult to understand, to cover up for a fellow bishop who had uh, been uh, accused of, of molestation by his own nephew. What's the reason for this? 
I don't know, but it certainly uh, indicates a pretty appalling moral state of affairs among the clergy. But do you take my point about what seems to me the most unbelievably malevolent attacks on gay people that are coming from some opponents of Francis? A lot of Catholics are are, uh, furious with Pope Francis for a variety of reasons, uh, including uh, doctrinal reasons. I I think it would be extremely bad if the attack on Pope Francis were conducted by people who have a sort of emotional need to attack uh, homosexuality. The question is much broader than that. Let's make one point clear. The supporters of Francis are most insistent that the criticism of him is being organised by, effectively, a conspiracy of conservatives. I have drawn attention in my article to the extraordinary similarity between the picture of Francis that emerges from Vigano's testimony and the picture of Francis in your book. But at no stage have you ever had any contact with Archbishop Vigano on these questions. I mean, for example, you didn't talk to him in researching your book and and you haven't talked to him since or, or been in touch with him in any other way. That's right. When, when he came back from his appointment as nuncio in America, I was in Rome, but uh, Archbishop Vigano went to northern Italy. I didn't meet him uh, then, and I haven't met him since. You were talking earlier about troubling new evidence that Francis was indifferent to deeply compromised clergy when he was in Buenos Aires. But actually, the evidence isn't new. It's been publicly available in Argentina for many years, not picked up by the Western media. What's horrified me since the story broke is the extent to which mainstream media outlets, especially the English-speaking world, seem unwilling to examine properly the very detailed claims made by Vigano and extremely willing to make excuses or, for Francis or to buy into the conspiracy allegations by if you like, the Hillary Clintons of the Catholic Church. Yes, uh, as I say in my book, uh, the the media have invested heavily in Pope Francis as this great uh, liberal uh, pope uh, and reformer. And uh, the last thing they want to do is to have that uh, myth exploded. Well, um, one has to say they're not doing their job properly, uh, but uh, eventually the the, the research will be done and and the, the facts will come out. But nonetheless... For Team Francis, the unwillingness of the media to investigate what is or what should be a story of enormous proportions is a remarkable asset for them. For example, if if you look at the absence of coverage in the British media, it's, it's very helpful to them. And when you do get coverage of it, it seems to have been almost dictated by Team Francis. For example, there was an article in the Financial Times the other day. How did that strike you? Oh, it was absolutely amazing. It was sheer pro-Francis propaganda. Of course, a large part of the trouble is that uh, uh, secular journalists in general are very uh, ill-informed about the Catholic Church. And there there seems to be a a small group of of people who have the ear of such journalists and and are are able to feed them their their own view of the matter. But as I say, the, the proper research needs to be done. The debate has become extraordinarily polarised, certainly on social media and in America, where it's been subsumed into or by 
the culture wars. So you have the right wing attacking Francis and the left wing defending him, to put it very crudely. It does leave one wondering whether there are any grey areas here and whether, for example, Pope Francis has redeeming features. I would never say that anybody, uh, let alone a, um, a Catholic prelate, has absolutely no redeeming features. This is a man who uh, got to the top uh, in his own order, the Jesuits, a man who was uh, appointed uh, Archbishop of uh, Buenos Aires. You, you don't have a career like that by being a, a complete villain. But I think there's an element that, that people don't really understand the Latin American culture. Uh, and and I, I don't really understand either this complete moral indifference that Bergoglio seems to have had throughout his career to the moral failings of the people he works with. But obviously, as far as redeeming features go, he, he, was, he was a good Jesuit superior. I don't regard him as a, as a complete hypocrite. One might conclude from reading your book that he is. Well, one might con conclude it, but I'm, I'm not competent to enter into a psychological study of Bergoglio. As I say, I, I do not understand this uh, moral indifference that he shows, but it is uh, a feature, and, and I think part of the explanation of it is his very strong political priority, uh, far more than any pope in modern times. Bergoglio is a politician almost more than, uh, almost before he is a man of the church. A politician, you have argued, strongly influenced by the modus operandi of Juan Perón, the pragmatic, to say the least, and cynical dictator of Argentina when he was growing up. Yes, and this is a, a tradition of complete political opportunism. In fact, I've been told since then by somebody who knows uh, Pope Francis that this is as much uh, a sort of psychological tray on his part, that when he's uh, talking to somebody, he's incapable of showing any opposition. He, he's very friendly, he, he gives the impression that he's totally on that person's side, and, and then behind his back, he will completely turn around. This gives the appearance of complete duplicity, but it, it seems to be a, a sort of um, a psychological quirk of, uh, of Bergoglio's. And I suppose one has to take into account the way in which a person's papacy, a pope's exercise of his office, is affected by his own psychological quirks. It's not a particularly unusual psychological quirk, at least in the political world. We're just not used to it in popes. Absolutely, yes. This is exactly the thing. Bergoglio is a politician rather than a spiritual leader. This, of course, would be very strongly disputed by his defenders, but I get the impression that, notwithstanding the lack of coverage in the media, his defenders are smaller in number than they were, particularly and significantly among the bishops of the church. It was interesting, I think, that one bishop in the United States actually published the whole of Vigano's testimony and circulated it to his flock, Quite a few bishops have now called for an inquiry into these claims, which indicates, or perhaps they've said so explicitly, that these claims are credible. Archbishop Chaput of Philadelphia, who is significantly passed over for a red hat by Pope Francis, um, has called for the forthcoming Synod on Youth, 
the Pope's Synod to be cancelled in the light of what we now know, not so much about Francis, but about a huge network of abusers within the Catholic Church whose victims were youth. Yes, exactly. It's a singularly inappropriate uh, subject, subject for a synod at the moment. And the fact is that if, if they continue with it, uh, they will continue as men who are openly discredited. Now, you, you say Pope Francis's defenders are, are, are getting fewer. I think they are very f uh, few indeed. Their, their great advantage is that they have this link with the secular media. But I, I think uh, within the church itself, there, there's a very different uh, pattern of opinion, and uh, we, we don't know what calls for reform are, are being made within the church, but I, I suspect there's a, there's a strong surge which Pope Francis get, is going to find it uh, very difficult to, to resist. It dismays me, but doesn't surprise me, that we've received no guidance in this matter no opinion in this matter indeed, from the leader of the Catholic Church in England and Wales, Cardinal Vincent Nichols. Does that surprise you? Well, I haven't been living in England and I, I'm not very well up on uh, um, Catholic politics uh, here. Uh, from what I've heard of uh, Cardinal Nichols, no, it doesn't surprise me, but, I, but I'm not qualified to, to comment on that in detail. Well, I think it's fair to say that with perhaps one exception, two exceptions maybe, the English hierarchy um, have got their head in the sands. What do you think this crisis means for the future of the church and particularly its unity as a worldwide communion? It's going to be an absolute disaster. And one um, detail which I, I think is worth mentioning is that the, the uh, scandal of clerical sexual abuse and the cover-up exploded in America a few weeks ago. And uh, I think most people's reaction at the, at the time was, how is the church going to, to, going to survive this? Now, Archbishop Viganot's uh, revelations have rather complicated the matter because instead of people p pursuing this, uh, this uh, problem, as you say, they've, uh, they've been polarized into, um, into liberal and conservative, which in a way is, is going to um, hamper the attempts to, to deal with the uh, appalling corruption that was revealed in America. It's, it's a matter of uh, putting the lid on the boiling pot, but um, I'm afraid that, that lid is going to be blown off quite soon. I, I think we do have to bear in mind that the vast majority of the acts of abuse that have been uncovered, and indeed the promotion of Theodore McCarrick, occurred not under Francis, but under St. John Paul II, whose record as Pope, I think, has been damaged by these revelations. Do you agree? I do agree. But then uh, th th there were other aspects of this. The way that um, Father Maciel of the, the Legionaries of Christ uh, was protected, his uh, appalling misdeeds were kept secret and uh, his, his religious order received enormous favor from John Paul II. Uh, I, I'm afraid this is a problem which goes back a, a very long way in the Catholic Church. And I certainly wouldn't say that uh, John Paul II was, uh, was innocent in that respect. Archbishop Vigano has called on Pope Francis to resign. And I think many Catholics would accept such a resignation with alacrity. 
Some canon lawyers are not clear that a pope can resign under duress. Others insist that he can. What do you think the chances are of the pope following the example of his predecessor, albeit for very different reasons, and vacating the see of Peter? At the moment, I don't think there's any chance at all uh, that wouldn't be in character for Pope Francis. But um, I, I think that uh, further revelations are going to come out. There's going to be further dissatisfaction among the uh, uh, Catholic hierarchy and the Catholic clergy. And we could easily come to a stage in which um, Pope Francis has no option but, but to resign. You, you say duress, but um, uh, I, I don't think the, um, the, the objections of canon law refer to duress of that kind. They're re referring to physical force. Now, if, if a pope resigns because he's, he's morally totally discredited, that, that's not something which would be excluded by canon law. I can't help thinking that if Francis is a Peronist at heart, he will resist almost any pressure to resign, because I don't think of Peronists as the resigning type. You're absolutely right. Peron was forced out and uh, spent uh, years of exile in Madrid, where I was living at the time. But uh, we haven't got a military junta to step in in the Catholic Church. That's certainly true. Henry Sear, thank you very much. <laughs>